everyone. This is our first episode. We are super, super excited to launch off with you. Um, so we're just going to go ahead and introduce ourselves. And then we're going to be talking about um, a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And I know it's near and dear to my co-host's um, heart as well. So um, just a little bit about myself. Um, I am Mackenzie Welch. I am a um, BCBA in San Jose, California, so the Bay Area. Um, I have been working in the field in different capacities for about 10 years. Um, I was a special educator. I was a special education um, paraeducator. I've been a behavioral technician. Um, and now I'm a BCBA and I've kind of served in different capacities. I like to call myself a little bit of a BCBA gypsy just because I've done a bunch of different stuff. Um, but, um, it has definitely given me a lot of, um, experiences in, um, with different populations and, um, in just a lot of different settings, working with a lot of different, um, practitioners. So I'm super excited to be here. One thing I am super passionate about um, going forward is disseminating behavior analysis and just um, being able to apply it in new ways. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce my co-host, Michelle, and she's going to tell you a little bit about herself as well. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. So my name is Michelle Zeman, and I have been a board certified behavior analyst for the last almost seven years now. It'll be seven years in August. Um, and I was a behavior tech for about three-ish years. Um, so I've been in the field for about 10 years. But something a little bit unique about me is I am neurodivergent. I actually was diagnosed with um, pervasive developmental disorder, not other specified. If you look at it from the DSM-5 umbrella, that is a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. At the time that I was diagnosed, I was considered borderline severe. And being borderline severe, you know, I wasn't really able to attend. I wasn't really able to communicate my wants and needs. And so I actually went through applied behavior analysis and I actually, like my experience with applied behavior analysis is pretty unique in the sense that we didn't have BCBAs back then. We didn't have RBTs back then, you know? So um, having that was actually very unique for me. And a, a topic that I'm really passionate about when it comes to applied behavior analysis really is the trauma-informed care aspect of things because you know, there's always a way that we can keep our clients in mind first with relation to ensuring we are providing the most high quality, most high quality care. Awesome. Um, and we are so super lucky to have you on and on as a co-host just to have your perspective and what you just kind of described dives straight into our first topic um, that we're going to be discussing. Um, so today we're going to be discussing all things trauma-informed and ABA and um, just how to create a safe space and environment using trauma-informed practices. Um, so you are definitely the perfect person to have on talking uh, topic, talking about this topic because um, there's a lot to talk, talk about and I think there's a lot more work to be done in the field as well. Um, so super glad to have you here and let's dive right in, shall we? Let's do it. Okay. Um, so just to let you, you've kind of, um, introduced it a little bit, but just tell us your experience about, um, growing up autistic. 
Absolutely. So growing up autistic, um, I was diagnosed at a very young age. I was three years old. Um, I don't personally remember the diagnostic process, but my mom does. And from what I understand, I was evaluated by a few people. Um, I've had multiple diagnostic tools that were implemented for me. And so um, if you are familiar with the CARS assessment and the ADOS, you know, of course they had those tools back then too. Um, so I got diagnosed officially with those also through observation by a doctor. Um, and that's how I was able to get that diagnosis. Now, growing up, I did have therapy. I did have ABA therapy, um, but ABA therapy was implemented by my mom who received training from an autism coach, not yeah. a BCBA. They were called autism autism. Literally. Yeah, <laughs> literally. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it was more of a tra parent training model when you think about it. Right. Um, and so what was great about having my mom involved with this particular, um, training with me was that I had somebody who I was very familiar with, very comfortable with, and I knew would understand. Um, yeah. so that being said too, you know, I had a variety of therapies, not just ABA, but I also had speech therapy, and I had something called sensory integration therapy. Um, you know, so those things absolutely helped me as well. I was in speech therapy for about five or six years and I was in sensory integration for a little over uh, six months or so. Um, so I, I basically had those therapies. It was incredibly helpful, but I was also a bit of the odd one out because I would get pulled from classes and yeah. You know, being autistic, I had these behaviors that were considered weird. And so because of that, I would get bullied. And, you know, I was also overweight back then. So not only did I have the the um, weird kid target on my back, I also had the fat kid target on my back. Yep. So yep. ultimately, yep. ultimately, it led to um, quite a bit of a sad experience. Mm -hmm. For me throughout school, yeah. it really took me till about high school to open up about having autism because I knew autism was like a dirty little secret for me really? because, yeah, because, yeah. you know, when you, when you have a family member who says, oh, well, you know, you should hide the fact that you have autism, that just goes to show you that they can't accept you for who you are. Totally. And so now I'm loud and proud. I say, I identify as being autistic. I say I have autism, you know, because we you should. Should. yeah, we should take pride I'm in proud in that girl. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's, I was just going to say, do you, can you just talk a little bit more about your trauma? Cause, cause I think it's really, I think still, I mean, especially in my experience too, it's like, I still see students today that are really kind of, um, struggling with the fact that they are, they are coming to terms with their diagnosis and service providers, you know, we, and we, we, we meet all, you know, we meet all good things, but inevitably, you know, we are going in providing a service and that is in some way, um, singling a kid out. So can you just talk about just more about like your experience in, in that realm and just what you think we can do to, um, improve upon that area as a field? Absolutely. So 
I remember being singled out in third grade and there was this paraprofessional person who came in to talk about autism. And what made me realize that I had autism was being pulled out of that discussion. And it felt like I wasn't allowed to hear about me having autism, which really is not fair to me. And it's not fair to people who don't know Mm -hmm. because autism shouldn't be something that somebody should hide. No one should be ashamed of their identity. And what really made me come to terms with my diagnosis is actually just being open about it, doing more research on what autism is and also disseminating what autism is. And kind of owning that, like, this is a part and it's not it's not like something I need to be ashamed of or hide. It's just like, this is a part of me. And there's, it's a lot of ways that make you unique too, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, like we say, no two autistic people are the same, you know? So my experience as an autistic person is different from the next autistic person, you know? So I think really one thing that we as BCBAs need to do is number one, teach that being autistic is okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it is a part of you. Um, you know, you identify with it and it's okay to be yourself. It's okay to love yourself in that regard. Absolutely. Um, and it's also, um, I, I think back to one of my older clients who, um, who would say autism is love. And really at the end of the day, like autism really is love, Absolutely. you know? Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, that's why a lot of, you know, we're, a lot of us are here is, is, um, is to create, you know, a more inclusive environment for, and there's so many neurodivergent people out there. And I think it is an exciting time for the field and that we get to like, really, really embrace that in, in today's world. So, um, yeah, there's there there's a lot of work to be done, and just it's just super valuable to to have your perspective on this. Oh, um, so that kind of gets to my next point. Um, so just and and just looking at, and I was actually looking a couple like a couple days before this podcast, just trying to hone in on the research research that we have on um, trauma informed practices and trauma informed ABA, and I have a general framework just from working in a variety of different companies. I've, I've had a lot of great mentors that have really, um, embraced this concept, but there isn't a ton out there. So, um, just going off that. So I think generally, like right now we have kind of a framework for that, um, trauma-informed care should be largely consent-based, um, definitely culturally sensitive. And this is just going off what, what I've learned. And then you can totally tell me what, what your experience just as a BCBA on trauma-informed care has been, um, that it should be proactive and mainly based on antecedent strategies. So we're really getting away from the punishment, um, consequence strategies, just because, um, we want to make sure that we are, um, being as proactive as possible, um, and then also a big thing too, and I think that this is this is newer, is just um, using extinction cautiously, um, just because it can be a really um, dangerous, I think, procedure for the individual. So do you just want to kind of, I think maybe talk about maybe what your experience has been learning as a BCBA about trauma-informed um, ABA, and then um, just points that maybe you want to see expanded upon? Absolutely. So 
when I, before I even became a BCBA, I was taught as a technician, you must follow through with the demand in place. And that was something that I taught to my RBTs. Yep. I always taught my RBTs, don't just, don't ask them the question, you know, don't ask them to do something because that gives you the opportunity yep. to be told no. Yep. Yep. That's we, and we all learn that, right? As a, I, I, I feel like just going back to RBT, it's like we all are like follow through. It's the follow through, follow through, follow through, follow through. Oh so yeah. If you, if, you, if you followed through with the demanded place, you were a winner for the day. Yeah, exactly. Like, that was the mentality. Yeah. Same. But, the, but the truth of the matter is we need to look at being able to advocate for ourselves, not just because we want to defy the person that we're talking or interacting with, but because being able to say no or try to express escape or yep. discomfort is a safety skill. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, imagine this, imagine as if, you know, you are out in public with your client and, you know, your client has always said, yes, they've always complied with demands in place. They've always complied in general, but then a stranger comes up and tries to kidnap them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You yeah. see where that safety risk comes in? So it, it, it's it's heartbreaking. When I see compliance-based goals, you know, yeah. I look at that and I'm like, you you shouldn't be targeting 100% compliance because no. yeah. if you target 100% compliance, you're ultimately putting your child at risk. So much risk. So much yeah. risk. And I love that you said that too, of just like, and I think even just safety, like even kidnap, like we could even apply that with like, with your body. So people touch, like, even like when we think about hand over hand and stuff like that, it's like, so they're complying with this direction or they're complying. And and again, this is no malintent, I think on anybody's part, but it's just, it's an important conversation to have. And just that when we're practically thinking about stuff of like, you know, the, anybody should be able to say, no, I don't want to be touched. Like, this is my body. I do not want to be touched. And I think that that's just like such a, um, important thing to remember too, when we're thinking about clients just as whole, whole individuals, because they need to go out into the world and just be able to say no to things that don't serve them and serve their bodies. Right. Agreed. Bodily autonomy is again, a safety skill when you think about it. Right. You know, and if the argument is, well, my child is, and I say this in quotations because I hate saying this, low functioning, and they don't know how to do that, you teach them. You teach them a capacity that they are able to do that, whether that be, you know, them pushing away, like something like, you know, just like a push, or or if they like try to move their body back, any form yeah. of communication absolutely is valid, you know? So any form of dissent, it doesn't have to be a spoken no. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be um, something on an AAC device or a picture. Yep. It can be nonverbal language. It can yeah. be body language. Yeah. And yeah. so um, I actually have gone as far as written into some of my treatment plans. Um, if my kids dissent, And if my kids do not want you to touch them, whether they say no or pull their body away, you need to honor that because that is them owning their bodily autonomy. Yes, absolutely. And it's so important as, 
you know, just thinking about a person, like they get to say no, (laughs) you know, and they, if they, if they don't want to, um, want to be touched or really if they don't want. And I think that that it's important that like, you know, it, it, it will be a give and take of like, we need compliance in certain aspects, but they're like that type of stuff. It's like, we really, really, um, I think need to be mindful. And you brought up a really, um, just important point regarding that. One thing you did bring up was, um, dissent and assent. So can you kind of just describe to, to listeners a little bit more about, um, what that means and just, um, kind of how to put that in treatment plans? Absolutely. So what I've done as far as, um, as far as dissent and assent goes, um, so dissent is basically saying no, mm-hmm. um, expressing escape essentially. Yeah. And assent means you are allowing consent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but also something to keep in mind, consent can be withdrawn at any time. Yep. So how I program that into my like treatment plans and whatnot I actually just recently wrote a goal about that for one of my clients and it's for them to dissent in whatever form of body language, whatever form of communication works for them. That's great. It shouldn't have to be them saying yes. It shouldn't have to be, you know, them giving you a picture. Even if my kid literally decides to walk away because he doesn't want to be involved in that, that is showing dissent. Yeah. And that's what I want to see. And it's some, it's just the fact that he is, he's communicating something, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We focus so much on spoken and um, verbal communication yeah. as behavior analysts. And we really need to start getting into the nonverbal communication, Absolutely. what their body language is like. Yes. We're so caught up in teaching our kids nonverbal body language and nonverbal cues. But what about the behavior analysts? Right. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Cause there, and that's the, I mean, that could be a whole, a whole topic in itself of like what, how we're, we're non-verbally communicating things, how we're communicating things to our clients, how we're communicating things to our staff. So, um, Mm -hmm. super, super important point. And I think that that is, um, that we definitely, that, that as a field just need to start looking at that and kind of, um, opening our minds up more in, in the research aspect. So as what would you like to see like research wise, what you, what would you like to see more of, um, out there in the literature? I would love to see more practical application of Mm -hmm. ascent and descent. And the reason why is because there really isn't enough research about it. Um, just speaking from personal experience, a few years ago, I actually supervised um, a technician and an older client of ours. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we did was we actually stepped away from the session. We actually had mom and dad also leave the house for a little bit because we were actually probing a kidnapping scenario. Now, I love that. I, it's yeah, because it's so and that's something that like, I don't think we 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 do very often. Like I, I, I can't say that I, as, as a practitioner, I've ever done that. And that just like brings, you know, a light bulb to my mind of like, okay, now we're going to, I'm going to take this back. So keep going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and before I even did this, just say, so you know, I got consent from the parents. Mm-hmm. We drew out an entire plan. Yeah. Um, we had a random like technician he knew as a stranger, um, essentially like help out with this. And we basically just had like a plan of action 
ultimately. Um, So the technician came over to the client's house when the client was home alone. And we were hoping that he wouldn't answer the door. Mm -hmm. Um, Not only did he answer the door, but when the person said, hey, I'd love to take you out for dinner. Will you, um, will you go with me? He said, yes. And he did, he went with her. Got it. He took okay. his phone, which, you know, I know is very important to this yep. client. Yep. He, took, he took his phone. He got into the car. He sat, he put on his seatbelt and she, the therapist drew, uh, drove off uh-huh. Uh-huh. and it was a scary experience. It was a life-changing experience for us. Yeah. You know, having, having a parent. That is literally exact. That is real life right there. That is wow. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and mom played along into it, you know, and mom was very emotional. Mom was like, why did you, um, why did you go with them? Cause you know, the client was saying, oh, I'm with a stranger. Like, I don't remember what exactly he said, you know, he went into the car with her and the fact that, you know, it was such a scary situation for everybody. And then the fact that this even happened just kind of like was a light bulb moment of yeah, we don't, we don't practice these things enough. Totally. And not to say that I should, that we should absolutely work on kidnapping scenarios <laughs> every day, but safety is such an important skill. And absolutely. the fact that my client was vulnerable enough to go with somebody he's never met before Mm -hmm. just goes to show you that there's too much focus in building compliance. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. And not enough focus in providing that dissent and also, um, and also just making sure that they are aware of their boundaries and their safety. And that really goes to, you know, because I think a lot of times we see, there's a lot of program, which it's like, these are, I think these are important skills, but when we think about the span of somebody's life, it's like, I think you bring up such a good point in that, like, okay, teaching someone to sit at a tabletop, right. Versus teaching ascent and descent. Like what, you know, thinking about somebody's life, like what, what is going to be the skill that's going to carry them through probably teaching them descent and ascent. So that is just, I think really, really com- important to, for us to consider as practitioners in treatment planning and generalization too. I think you just brought up a really good point of like, maybe we would, we, we could teach ascent and descent, like in a session, like in their house where it might work. But then when we take it out into a car or something like it, it's, it's, it's a completely different scenario. So just really, I think thinking about different ways to generalize and how to set up our treatment planning for generalization as well. Absolutely. What I've done is I've actually broken that down into phases. So Mm -hmm. I start off with a DTT context of um, what, like, for example, can I do this? Can I do that? Or can we do this? And then teaching them to ascent and descent in that way, teaching them the difference between safe and unsafe. Mm -hmm. Um, Kidnapping is unsafe, but going with your parents to the store and staying with them is safe, you know? So it's like, understanding from that context and then putting it into practical application, Absolutely. you know, um, is it a long time? To- is it going to take a long time to get there? Yeah. yeah. But is it worth it? Absolutely. Hopefully. Yeah. And when we're thinking about impact and you know what we're doing for this child's life, it's like, and I love that you described it in 
phases. And like, that could be like a whole framework in itself that like people can actually use of like, okay, we teach it in this context and then we teach it in this context and this context. And it just, um, I think it, it's a more um, holistic and just practical way to, and then it's like, then we're all doing, you know, we're all really, I think that gets just as a practitioner thinking the sometimes it, it things do get monotonous of the like day-to-day -day session. And it's like, this is all different ways of like where everybody feels the impact of like, this is actually a very, very important skill. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And you know, it's funny you mentioned monotony, you know, the same thing can be traumatic in of itself. Absolutely. You know? The drill over and over and over and over. Yeah. 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 Like if someone had you sit at a table and do drills consistently for an hour and it had to be for an hour, wouldn't you want to get up and walk away from them or scream <laughs> at them? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. if you want to do that, imagine how our clients really. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, sometimes when you want to scream in session, they, they, I mean, it's, you know, they probably do too. So, um, I love, and I, I love that you brought that up. I, just, I think frameworks in general, like within, cause I know you, um, had a lot going on just like within your educational experience. And I'm just thinking about this as a school BCBA and that the framework of, um, the school system in general is, very, in my opinion, this is my opinion, very, very outdated and very, um, you know, might've worked at one time, but not necessarily serving us anymore. So it just like, when we think about kids that want to get up from their desk and scream, it's like, well, they're doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. So, um, I kind of want to get back to like, what was your experience just, and I know you've, you've touched on it briefly just in school. Cause this is just something that is very, I'm very passionate about. <laughs> For sure. So in school, because I had certain stereotypical behaviors yeah. and I did do some of them in school, not meaning to, but I did because it just came yeah. out. I got bullied. Yeah. I remember I'll go back to a memory from when I was in sixth grade. Um, perfect example. We had assigned lunch seats and mm -hmm. we had to sit in alphabetical order. Well, with my last name starting with a Z, I was the last person yeah. in my class and there wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't enough room for me to sit at the table. So I had to sit by myself and I was bored. And so I would start engaging in conversational scripting and there were kids who made fun of me because of it. Mm -hmm. And what mm -hmm. kids, the kids don't understand is when I'm bored and there is nothing going on that's my cue to engage in some sort of behavior that will stimulate me yeah. because I don't do well with, you know, just being stuck in one specific place without something. Silence yeah. actually sort of scares me in a way, yeah. 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 you know? And that, so, I think that that's an important thing to like, just thinking about in your brain of like, you know, when, the, when, what might be going on to a typical kid is not what's going on into your, so like just going in, like when you say like silence does get like, what do you, what is like, what's going on in your brain during those, those times? I, I feel like when it comes to silence, it's just completely bare. It's completely yeah. like, uh -huh. it's frightening almost, yeah. you know, yeah. because I don't have some sort of outlet. I don't have some sort of like 
fidget or a yep. phone or something that I can use, you know, to alleviate some of that silence in the brain, you I know? Love I love that. So, like, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that that could really help practitioners and when like treatment planning too, of like, when we're thinking about attending, it's like, does it really need to look that they are eyes on teacher? Probably no. Like it, it could look that they are, you know, they're using a fidget or they're using some type of phone. Cause it's like, when we think, and one of my favorite mentors told me this too, of like, when we think about, okay, as adults, when we're waiting in line, do we just tell people to like sit and wait or like, or just like, okay, you just need to wait there. It's like, we as adults aren't just, no, we're on our phone, like all the time, like we're doing something. So, um, I think that that's really, really important of like, when thinking about those kind of type of treatment planning aspects. And when we're seeing, we're, we're like planning for delayed gratification of like, we're not just robots standing there and waiting, you know, it's like, we are actually, maybe it's, they will redirect to an alternate activity, right? Not, not necessarily that we're just standing there waiting. Exactly. And with that being said too, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I've actually done the same thing when I was first BCBA. And even as a tech, I would tell my kids to wait and just kind of sit there. But the truth of the matter is, when you, you know, you mentioned the line thing, I think of a doctor's office, yeah. you know, you have to sit in a chair for so long waiting for a practitioner to come out and evaluate you. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, you're just going to be told to sit there and wait and do nothing. Yeah. No, exactly. I go on my phone. I will play games, you know, and pretend I'm texting people yeah. as a way to help me wait. You yeah. know, people read magazines. Why can't my kids do the same? Right. And you also mentioned, um, you also mentioned eye contact, which that's still a big area thing. Yeah. Oh, that is, that is a big area. You know, I've seen so many technicians and so many BCBAs try to divert their head to looking at them, whether that be by grabbing their face or putting a shield by their eyes. That right. is so aversive. How would you Absolutely. like it if I moved your head so you yeah. could look at me? Yeah. 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 You know, <laughs> I would say that, I mean, I don't know what I am. I think I'm neurodivergent in some way, but I, 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 I'm not autistic, but I, I hate eye contact. So it's just like, when you're thinking about it and thinking about it just in, in humane ways, like where, you know, why, why, why are we, <laughs> I think it, it really just goes back to the why of like, okay, why, what is the fun? Like what? how is this going to serve this person later, later on in life? So exactly. And there are people who still believe in, you have to do eye contact, right? You have to have some form of eye contact and that's not it. Like I understand orienting towards a sound source, orienting when their name is called, but do I expect you to look me in the eyes? No. I mean, even this episode you're, you probably, and granted, I'm not super close to my camera, but you know, I'm looking in all different directions. I'm looking at, you know, my bathroom door. Um, that's also a big thing too, because even growing up, eye contact was a stigma, um, for me, you know, I would look down because I did not like looking people in the face. Yeah. 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 And And I I got bullied for that too. (laughs) So all really, I think all really important points to focus on just when we're, we're planning as BCBAs and practitioners. So 
Um, before we jump back in, I do want to give um, listeners our first um, code word to enter in for CEUs. And that first code word is going to be rocket. That's R-O-C-K-E-T. Um, R-O-C-K-E-T, rocket, just like um, a rocket launching in space. Okay, so we are back um, with Michelle talking on this very, very important topic of um, trauma-informed ABA. Um, and just we're just going to kind of tie this all together um, now and just um, go into a little bit of ethics and also applying this um, just to trauma in general and trauma-informed practices um, just across the board. So the first thing I want to hit on um, is ethics. So how does this, and Michelle's kind of the expert on this, so how does this all relate back to the RBT code of ethics and um, the BACB code of ethics as well, or sorry, the BCBA code of ethics as well? Absolutely. So first let's dive into the BACB and the BCBA code of ethics. Um, the two codes that stand out most to me is 2.15 and 3.01. I know that there's more out there, but the reason why those two stand out to me is because in 2.15, which is titled minimizing risk of behavior change interventions, um, there's a few keywords here. They are selecting, designing, and implementing behavior change interventions with a focus on minimizing risk of harm to the client. And that means being trauma-informed. That means using interventions that are culturally um, sensitive, culturally competent. And also, if you're going to use a restrictive or punishment-based procedure, it needs to occur only after demonstrating that the desired results aren't coming out. Right. But again, even with punishment, you don't want to have, you don't want to be harmful in any way, Absolutely. right? Yeah. And then 3.01, responsibility to clients, yeah. acting in the best interest of the client. That's mm -hmm. completely trauma-informed. Yep. No. So those are extremely important, you know, taking appropriate steps um, to support clients' rights. That's also honoring bodily autonomy, making sure that you are honoring their body language, honoring, you know, their, um, their descent and assent. You know, right. it's, it's really honoring them as a whole. So, and the reason why I want to go into the BCBA first is because we as BCBAs need to ensure that we're teaching our RBTs 100%. from that perspective too. Yeah. yeah. Now going into RBT 2.01 and 2.07 literally have very similar verbiage, but it's perfect. So 2.01 RBTs do no harm and work to support the best interest of their clients. Mm -hmm. That is trauma-informed. Yep. RBTs take necessary actions to protect clients when they become aware that a client's legal rights are being violated or that there is risk of harm to a client. Yep. When we look at that, if we're not trauma-informed, we're technically in violation of yeah. our- And we're do we're do we are doing harm if, we if we're not trauma-informed, so. Exactly, exactly. So I just think it's really important from a ethics standpoint to really make sure that we are being as trauma informed, you know, not just for the sake of our clients, but it's also in our code. Absolutely. Yeah. 
that is that is our due diligence as um, BCBAs and RBTs as well. Yes, absolutely. And um, like you said, I think it's really important. It's it's the BCBA's utmost responsibility to I think really really be informed on. So when you are going in with you, with your client, just really I think really honing in on what the family's values are, what the family's um, culture is, um, what the individuals called like what what they want um, is so so important. I think a lot of that does um, just from my experience. It, it gets lost in the million other, and because we as BCBAs have a billion other things to do, but that's probably one of the most important things and um, something to consider. Oh, I have a lot to say on that too. You know, just <laughs> from a parent training standpoint, um, I go into every meeting with making sure that I'm meeting their priorities. Mm-hmm. Very first meeting is all about me pairing with the parent. Yeah, And so the first thing I ask, is what are your biggest concerns? Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because to me, I don't want to build a treatment plan that is based off of what I feel is important. My input does matter, but I'm with the client maybe 10 to 20% of their hours per week. My technician is out there for whatever direct service hours they provide. But my caregivers are there 24 seven. I'm a guest. Mm -hmm. I'm a guest in my clients' lives. My technicians are guests in their lives. They can kick us out anytime they want to. So I have to have buy-in from the caregivers. Obviously I need to have uh, client buy-in as well. And even if they can't say, well, I want to work on this. I want to work on that. Their body language, you know, when they dissent, that is showing that they're not buying into what you're doing. You know, yeah. So, and when thinking about just like what, what skills are actually going to maintain are the stuff that's going to be reinforced in the natural environment. So, if the parents not on board, if the clients not on board, what's really what is the point? Because it's like that's not going to carry over. That's not going to general. Like that's not something. If it's not you know looked at from it being their literally their treatment plan, then it's like what what good are we actually doing, right? Exactly. And, you know, I remember seeing a question on one of my like practice exams about how the parents really want their child to wear this specific religious item. I think it was a yarmulke, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that was a big priority for them. But then the answer was, well, we have other things to work on before, but that's not being culturally competent, nor is it being culturally sound. Yeah. Because when you think about it, you know, if this is something that means a lot to the families, we should do our due diligence and make sure that we are supporting them in that aspect. You know, Um, I know that some of the clients that I've worked with in the past, they have mentioned you know, being more organized. Like I had an older client who told me, Michelle, I want to be organized and I want to make sure that I'm preparing myself for the next day. Yeah. And that goal in itself is going to be even more meaningful and just, it's, it's going to be more impactful in general. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because at the end of the day, like, yes, I can put in goals that I think are valuable, but if I'm not getting the parents input and if I'm not getting 
the client's input, what am I doing? What's the point? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so another, another just thing to kind of consider when we're thinking about the scope of trauma and ABA are just other traumatic considerations. So just other experiences that an individual can have that might be in their trauma history. So can you just kind of talk a little bit about that? And then I can talk about it from my perspective, just seeing it across the board, um, in different settings as well. Absolutely. So, you know, when we think of trauma that has occurred in a client's life, we think of abuse, we think of, you know, any form of abuse, but trauma doesn't have to be just limited to abuse. It can actually be a lot of different things when you think about it. Um, for example, if they have like a new sibling come along, that can be traumatic in of itself because it's a huge disruption. Um, a divorce, a divorce is a perfect example too, because you know, your mom and dad are no longer living together. And it goes back to, you know, we talk about tolerating changes in our natural routine, but that's a big change to to go through. You know, imagine if someone made you try to tolerate those types of changes, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on, depending on the level of, depending on the situation that can be very traumatic for you. Absolutely. And when I, I just, I was just going to say, I looked up. So just while you were talking, just so thinking about operational definition of trauma is just a, this is the Merriam-Webster dictionary, a deeply distressing or disturbing experience, which I know probably not the most objective, but still like that is, that's the definition that we look at. If it's a deeply distressing experience, that can be just exactly what you're talking about. Like it can be a change of homes. It can be a change of service providers. It can be really anything. So just looking at it from the individual's perspective, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's really important to note that just because the child may or may not communicate that they are traumatized from an experience doesn't mean it's not there. Yes. Their trauma is just as valid as anybody else's. And we have to be mindful of that. Yeah. I remember working with a client whose parents were separating Mm -hmm. and it took me so much not to just hold him and squeeze him and love on him for the next day, because I had literally found out that morning that the parents were separating. And it's really important that we, as behavior analysts, keep that in mind. Uh There's three events that happen to all of us. And, you know, one form of trauma is not bigger or greater than the other. All trauma is valid. If something is very uh, traumatic to you, then it's traumatic to you, you know, think about the big problem, little problems, (laughs) but it's like, when you're thinking about it from an individual's perspective, it's like, you can't minimize somebody's experience just because, you know, it's not considered quote unquote neglect or abuse or anything like that. It's still, it's something that happened to the individual or, or you that, that was traumatizing to you. So, um, I think it's really important to have that lens. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we have talked about, you know, the big problem, little problem programs, the small, medium, large problems, um, the red, green. We've all seen it. Yes. (laughs) We've all seen it. And we have a generic answer for each of those things. But how do we know that that's really how the client feels? Yeah. You know, maybe losing a piece of a puzzle 
is very traumatic for them because that was their all-time favorite puzzle. Right, right, you know? right. Or, and it deeply affected them. Yeah. yeah. Or what if you know losing um, losing a quarter is traumatic to them and it's a big yeah. deal to them because they couldn't buy lunch the next day. Yeah. yeah. You know, think yeah. about it from that perspective. We're, we're dead set on teaching clients to perspective take, but when it comes to these types of programs, we have to yeah, really perspective take as well. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we have to make sure that we're coming in from that yeah. perspective too. Hundred percent. Practice what we preach a thousand percent. And I think it's, I mean, we all, you know, we all go in like we like with good intent, but it's like, it, it gets lost. I think in the, I have to do X, I have to do this and I have to do this as a BCB and the treatment plan has to look like this and this. And it's like, when we get into all of that, it's like, it really takes away from like, what are we actually here to do? And that's make, make, you know, make impacts in our clients' lives. And all of these things are really, I think, important to consider and just important not to really, really important not to lose sight of, you know? Absolutely. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we're an individualized science. And when we are being individualized, we're also being trauma-informed in that sense. So it's really important to make sure that what you're teaching your child is ultimately socially significant to them. Yes. And also being able to teach them safety skills, being able to teach them these important life skills. So that way they can be an independent adult someday. Cause remember autistic children grow up to be autistic adults. And, and I, yeah. think- and, and very, very independent. Like, look at, look at what we have here right in front of us, right. <laughs> you know, right. Exactly. Exactly. And unfortunately, you know, not every autistic child is going to grow up to be an independent autistic adult. Yeah. yeah. And so we have to consider what their life is going to look like and what skills we can teach them. So that way they can live not just a least restrictive life, but a quality, quality, quality. It's quality of life for sure. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And just really thinking about the actual and actually the most meaningful outcomes, not just like it's taking ourselves out of the equation, taking our ego out of the equation and just really thinking about their most meaningful outcomes and literally their best life. Like we're here to help people live their best lives, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't have to be, you know, you following these certain assessment tools and, you know, making sure we mark out the grid and color it in. It's a rainbow, but you know, rather than that, we need to look at the actual functional skills and Mm -hmm. the actual um, things that they can take away from our practice which is why I will t- ask parents, what are your biggest concerns for my clients? You know, I also try to get to know their dynamic and their, um, their vibe. Yep. You know, if I have I a client, you said, get to know your client's vibe. I love it. <laughs> yes, exactly. If something is meaningful to them, then I'm going to take that to heart and do something about it. Like for example, I have a kid who loves dinosaurs and some of my, um, some of my targets involve dinosaurs because they mean a lot to him. I'm not just going to throw in, for example, like a random cube or yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like just some random things. So I can say, Hey, he's got another tact in his repertoire, you know, like, no. Yeah. Yeah. So 
really, really thinking about the significance of things. Well, this was, I feel like we could go on. I mean, we could do a part two of this. If like we could do a part two, part three, part four, up to part a million. Um, cause this is just, I think such a important conversation and something I think that is it's ever evolving, right? It's going to be evolving throughout, uh, the span of just this field and the span of, um, what we're doing as practitioners. So I, I think it's really important to keep having these conversations and just be really open to it. And you are absolutely just your, your insights and perspective is so, so valuable. So thank you so much. And we couldn't be more excited to have you on, um, as our co-host. So just to leave listeners, um, we very much encourage you to seek out your own research on trauma-informed ABA. You can totally hit us back with what you find. Um, and we can, I think that, like we said, this is an ever evolving conversation. So, um, important to keep having and important to keep having, uh, with each other and with our teams. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you so much, everybody. And we hope to see you back for episode two.